On a dark desert night. A small voice calls. Sister, will you tell us a tale? Jinn, Magians, Sultans, Buried Treasure. We're going to explore what they say about their cultures then and why they captivate us now. Light your lamp and pour some tea while we retell you a thing. Welcome back to the podcast. We are back at it again with a 1001 Nights episode that, as always, we are very excited about. Because if we weren't excited about it, we wouldn't record the episode. We would just be like, nope, no episode this week. We'll put it off until we find a topic we're excited about. But we've got some great stories, lots of stories to tell. I love the ones where it's like lots of little tales and tales within tales. And then, especially in this one, they kind of end up all relating to each other. Yeah. um, and, And sort of playing off of each other, which is Kind of fun. At least the ones that I'm reading, and I don't even know the ones that you're going to read. So I know. I, I, I like to keep the stories I'm going to tell as a surprise for you. Yeah, I love it. Fresh. Yeah. Except you never know when it, like a story might have like surprise cannibalism in it because I, I like keep it secret to myself so that like <laughs> when it happens or it seems like child murder also, I'll keep that to myself and then I'll just like suddenly like throw it at you and then you're... reaction is like horrified and then i delight and you're like (laughs) your horror i'm like haha good good i did a great job horrifying him yeah Uh, it's fun it's fun for me as well it's one of those like you know going to a haunted house riding on a roller coaster yeah it's horrifying yeah it's scary yeah you're like ooh, that's gross i wish i didn't hear it but also like in a safe context so you're like actually but i did like hearing that because it made me feel feelings in a safe place that you normally don't get a feel except for in a bad place. <laughs> yeah. Normally when you're talking about cannibalism, if it's not being talked about in a safe space, it's a little more terrifying. Yes, that is for sure. So I'm excited. We're going to be looking at kind of a group of tales that is inside of a frame story that is called The Wiles of Women. The King and His Seven Viziers. The Wiles of Women. I see no way that this will devolve into another of Katrina's infamous <laughs> feminist rants. None at all. <laughs> yeah. I, how could it possibly happen? <laughs> <laughs> so this group of tales is about two thirds of the way through the Thousand and One Nights. And we have talked about like the theme of like the wiles of women or like the theme of like are women innately evil monsters? <laughs> That's a pretty good thing. <laughs> uh, but as we've been like going through the Thousand One Nights, we started with that original frame story of King Shariar and Shahrazad. And we've talked about how Shahrazad is trying to convince King Shariar that like women aren't garbage (laughs) and so this idea of like the wiles of women and you know are women trying to ruin men's lives (laughs) like that kind of idea pops up so i of course got a quote from uh the arabian nights of companion by robert Irwin. i have many quotes today from the arabian nights of companion i hope everyone's ready (laughs) <laughs> to the surprise of absolutely no one, you have yeah. many words from Arabian Nights, a companion. 
So this first one that I'll that I will use is the tales are designed to teach, and it is striking how many of the tales feature adulterous women, virtuous women, dominant women, and wily women. From some of the tales, Shariar may learn that there can be such a thing as fidelity and love and marriage. From other tales, he may conclude that women are infinitely lustful and will deceive their husbands if they can, and he may derive a melancholy sort of consolation from this. Then again, after listening to yet other stories, he may simply laugh and conclude that sex is not such a serious matter anyway. The sheer diversity of the stories can be seen as providing a therapy of a kind. And this section of tales really does that because what we're going to see is a kind of a back and forth trying to like say men are just as wily as women and stories that are like, no, 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 women are far worse. This like back and forth. That's one of the things that I really enjoy in all sorts of storytelling where there is this kind of back and forth where you have either different stories or like if it's like a TV show or a movie where there's kind of like subplots and subplots that are kind of touching on opposing sides of sort of the same theme or something like where the, the relationship between them becomes something like, yeah, a story on its own kind of has a point that it's making and you can look at that in isolation and get something from it. And then another story on its own has its own meaning and whatever that you can take from it. But then when you look at those two, how they are being told directly in response to one another, then comparing and contrasting the differences is something that I'm really into. And I feel like it's what we do a ton on this podcast in different ways where we take stories that weren't necessarily meant to be told together, but that are maybe of the same tale type or something like that and seeing where they're the same, where they're different and how the stories interact with one another when compared in that way. So it's like, I, like I said before, I'm super excited about this episode, even more than average. Good. So obviously with the title, The Wiles of Women, it sounds like you are, I mean, you already remarked on it, that it's like, okay, Katrina is going to like make this devolve into kind of like a feminist rant. Cause the, the title really does like bring up the idea of like, Oh, the patriarchy. Always like <laughs> thinking that women are like up to something and need to be like controlled. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know how I feel about the sexism that's like inside of the folklore. But folklore reflects the time and the place that it was told and collected and not necessarily what we in 2021 would like want them to reflect. So, you know, by studying and repeating these stories in this context, we're not agreeing with them. Uh, we're just learning from them and seeing what we can learn from the cultures that, like, wrote them. Right, exactly. And I was going to point out, too, like, it's not a bad thing that we bring this up all the time. The reason we bring it up all the time is because it's one of the ways that our cultural norms today are very different from the cultural norms of the time period that these tales come from. So it's something that comes up again and again and again, because it's one of the major ways that society today in the United States or, you know, throughout the world really is different from when these stories come from. Yeah. So like, it's an important thing to keep bringing up because it is an important topic and it's an important way that our world has changed. Yeah. And there are interesting things that we can say about a story 
by looking at it through our modern day lens. And also there are interesting and important things that we can get by looking through the lens of the time as well. The thing that is like the biggest thing in this episode that kind of gave me pause of like, should we tackle this story? Because it it like is more than a little cringe. Um, (laughs) Is the frame story that this, um, the frame story of this section of tales, the the problem that is driving this is a topic that is so big in like the world that we live in today, and that is believing women. Um and that, you know, the the idea that men are being falsely accused of um like sexual crimes is like that fear is so overblown with what we see like statistically speaking um mm-hmm. but this story contains an example of a woman doing just that and so it was like okay do i want to do a podcast episode that you know r- just repeats that same kind of story of like oh women are constantly giving false accusations because that's that's not reality, mm-hmm. but it's a, a a story narrative that does get pushed a lot through time. So I'm like, I was like, oh, do I really want to do that? But what we're talking about today um, is very integral to the Thousand and One Nights, looking at it as a whole. And so I did not want to skip over like a whole section entitled the wiles of women when that is one of the main points of the thousand and one nights. So I just want people to know that I realize (laughs) that it is a problem in our society that like there is this fear of women giving false accusations. And so women aren't believed enough when there is like a sexual crime that is committed against them. I'm aware that that is a problem and that this story does nothing to help that. Uh, But the point of us talking about that topic today is, you know, to examine the historical writings of the thousand and one nights, not, not to promote what we're talking about today. If that makes sense. You get it, right? You at home (laughs) listener, you get it. You get me. So here's another quote from Robert Irwin. It says, It is difficult to argue that the story collection as a whole, with its diverse constituents, presents a case for either misogyny or feminism. It is even difficult to make deductions from the erotic content of the tales about actual sexual behavior in the medieval Islamic lands, and anyone who wishes to make use of incidents in the stories as data about Arab sexual practices faces serious problems. In the first place, obviously, many of the tales are not of Islamic origin. However, it remains true, of course, that the fact that such tales were translated and narrated in the Arab lands means that the attitudes and practices conveyed in those tales were not wholly alien to Arab knowledge and taste. So the reason why I want to bring up this quote and also look at it is because when we're telling stories of a culture outside of our own and... Jeff and I are not from the Middle East. We are white people. There is a tendency, and people have even 
pointed the finger at Sir Richard Burton, who was a translator of the Knights into English. As a person who perpetuated the stereotype that women in the Middle East and in Asia were hypersexualized. So, um, or they didn't bring up the idea that they were hyper. They, they added to the hypersexualization in the mind of Westerners of Middle Eastern and Asian mm-hmm. women. So I like this quote by Robert Irwin because it is to remind people that like, just because in these stories that we're going to be telling, there are women who are highly sexual, that that does not reflect the actual lived experiences of Middle Eastern women. Right. I think of, this reminds me of the whole thing. There's a whole thing about this of like, you know, in movies today, there are so many people that are like hit men and hit women, you know, like that their job is to like, oh, you get a little notification on your phone. This person needs to be killed. I'm, uh, that's my job. I accept it. Like it's an Uber ride. I'm going to go carry this out. It's like, if you were to look at movies and like do a cross section of movies and be like, what were the popular op- occupations <laughs> of the time period in, yeah. in the 20th century in the United States? What occupations were the most common? It would be like hitmen would be like, yeah. everyone was a hitman. Like there were, there were more hitmen in movies than there have been actual hitmen in like the hit history of the and world. And like graphic probably. designers. You know? So it's like, <laughs> That seems to, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and screenwriters. <laughs> That's all people were. Yeah, exactly. That like, it was like, uh, I don't know how they got anything done. Those were the only professions that, it was that like, anyone engaged just in. Just because this is something that pops up a lot in stories, it doesn't mean that it, it reflects exactly what these people, how they live their lives, or even how they saw themselves. Or how often people encountered <laughs> genies in the wild. Come on, people. Okay, so I have one more thing that I'm going to preface this story with, uh, some information for people to have. And it is one more quote by Robert Irwin. It says, a story that is overtly about a woman's scheme to get her husband out of the house so that her lover may join her in bed may be really a story about ingenuity rather than female sexual needs. Adultery is often used as a plot mover in the stories of the knights, and thus the incidents of adultery in the stories tells us little or nothing about the incidences of adultery in medieval society. Uh, so I love this idea to frame what we're about to talk about as trickster tales. Like they're more tricksters, um, than to me, it reads more as trickster tale than like evil person. So a woman who is scheming against her husband, trying to get what she wants is like a trickster. And I love looking at it through this frame because trickster tales are usually tales that point out where there's a power imbalance. And there's obviously a power imbalance mm-hmm. between like men and women throughout many cultures and times. And so when women are able to like pull one over on their husbands in these stories, she is acting as a trickster and a person who's like taking back more of her power. And we're definitely going to be talking about that later on the episode because I love reframing it that way because I'm not a person who is like pro infidelity, but some of these stories are (laughs) so, so hilarious. 
And now I want to preface this story by saying something else, Jeff. I'm like, oh, great. One more (laughs) thing. So before I start telling my story that's going to frame the whole thing, I want people to know that we are taking out about two thirds of the stories that are included inside of this middle section because there are just too many. This is a battle of storytellers that goes on for seven days inside of like the story itself. And so there's like 14 or 15 different tales and we're just telling a fraction of those stories. And so if people want to go and get a copy of volume two, that's where these ones are found and read the other stories that we're kind of cutting out of this section. I highly recommend some of the stories are uh, not safe for work. Uh, (laughs) yeah i just want people to know there's more stories where these came from if they are interested in like getting more of these nice so now the story of the wiles of women the king and the seven viziers so there was once a king who obviously was super rich super wealthy And throughout his long life, he was unable to ever father a son. So the king was really upset about this. And so he prayed to God in the name of the prophet that he would be able to have a son. And so he prayed really hard that he would be able to have a son who would be able to inherit his kingdom after the king had died. And so he prayed and prayed and prayed about this. And then he, it says he went to his private chamber and sent for his wife. (laughs) Because a very important part of the baby making process is the woman. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So his wife came to him. They did the thing that husbands and wives do to make babies. I like that. I'm so mature and that that's how I like It just says, with whom he lay. And she was able to conceive a baby. And when she gave birth to this baby, it says, his face was as full as the moon on its 14th night. So (laughs) big full moon head baby. It'd be bad if he had a crescent moon head. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So when this boy was five years old, he was entrusted to one of the king's servants, a wise and skilled philosopher whose name was Sindbad. Oh, but not the Sindbad. Not the Sindbad the sailor, no. But, you know, you got the same name, so you're kind of cool just for having the name. Yeah. It's like if your name was Michael Jordan, but you're not like the Michael Jordan, but it's like, you know, you're still kind of cool just for having that as your name. And so when this prince grew to be 10 years old, Sinbad instructed him in philosophy and no one could match him even at this young age in learning philosophy and understanding. And as he got older, his father wanted him to learn about champion horsemanship. And it's funny, okay, because Jeff, you and I have joked about this. I don't know whether it was on a bonus episode or inside of like the series of the thousand one nights that we've been doing, but Uh I've been joking about how horsemanship was always listed in the things that like a refined prince in like 
Arab lands should know. Yeah. And I did not know this until I was watching the Olympics and I was making fun of dressage. And I was like, who even came up with dressage? <laughs> and the Middle Eastern like armies oh, used wow. dressage. It was like being good on a horse was legit very, very important yeah. for them wow. militarily. Yeah. And like, that's the whole reason why we have dressage. And so I had been making fun of it. I was like, why are they always talking about horsemanship being very important? Apparently because it's super important. (laughs) If it keeps coming up in the tales that are hundreds and hundreds of years old, chances are it's relevant. (laughs) Chances are. That's the lesson we keep learning on this podcast. that's why it's like anytime you see one of those like little details and you're like huh why is that it's always good to like do a deep dive that's oddly specific when you have that thought that's the key to get a googling get a googling because that's what i do every day i like (laughs) sit down with my coffee and i get a googling (laughs) all right so this young prince quickly excelled in all of his horsemanship he got really good about war strategy and he was surpassing all of his peers. And he was just absolutely the like perfect son that his father had always wanted. So one day when Sindbad the wise was studying the stars and I did not know this until today, Jeff, here's another like side tangent, like two thirds of the names of the stars are Arabic names. Oh, interesting. It makes sense. Yes. Because but I like wouldn't have the, thought I wouldn't have guessed that. But yeah, that makes total sense. Like going back, these people have this like incredible knowledge of like the stars because they were like nomadic travelers. And the the ground that they were traveling would change and shift. And so yeah. they it was like the sea. They had to have something that was more solid to to use to guide them than landmarks. Yeah. Landmarks yeah. were garbage. And so they were like amazing with like stars. And I didn't realize that like Beetlejuice is an Arabic uh, word. Oh, wow. So you're careful not to say it two more times on the podcast or something else is going to happen. Anyway, so that was again us just like wandering off into like something else. Okay. So one day when Sinbad the Wise was studying the stars and the prince's horoscope, he discovered that in the next seven days, if the prince spoke a single word, this would bring about his death. Mm. Mm -hmm -hmm. Anytime horoscopes foretell something, everybody's like butts should clench. (laughs) Because it, it always is like, ah, inescapable horrors so sindabad went to the king and he told the king what he had discovered looking at the prince's horoscopes and when the king heard this he was like sindabad what do you suggest and sindabad was like i would suggest that we take the prince and we put him in a room that is like away from everybody else but let's also bring in some singing girls and there's going to be more about singing girls Later, it says the king sent one of his favorite singing girls, the most beautiful of them all, and told her to take the prince to her quarters and keep him locked there. 
and not letting him come out to the palace for seven days so that he could be secluded. And other people were going to be sent to that area to be playing music, to entertain him with music and song and dance. So basically just entertain him for seven days, secluded off alone so that he's not going to speak to anybody. So this singing girl who was the favorite concubine of the king did what she was told. And she took this boy who is now in his like older teenage years. I don't want people to Mm. still think he's the 10 year old (laughs) that I, because then this story would get real gross real fast. I know I'm glad you clarified. Okay, good. So she took him to her quarters and when they got there, the concubine was looking at the prince at his indescribably handsome face and the the muscles on him, the way that he moved, just he was just so beautiful. He had grown from this beautiful baby into this like gorgeous attractive man. And it says that the favorite concubine fell in love instantly at the sight of him. And she could not restrain herself and she threw herself on him. And he did not accept her advances. And he stopped her from what she was doing. And he said, when I leave here and I see my father next, I shall tell him what you did and he will kill you. So the girl went to the king since this guy is going to be locked up for the next seven days. Mm -hmm. She goes to the king first and she's just like crying and sobbing and wailing. And the king asks his favorite concubine, what is the matter? What what's happened? Is it my son? Is he hurt? Did something happen? And she's like, no, no, no. Your son, the prince, he tried to seduce me and he wants to have me killed. But I kept I fought him off of me and ran away from him and I can't go back to him and take care of him for the next like seven days because like he, you know, tried to like hurt me and he was so awful. I just can't believe the injustice of this all. And the king, when he heard this, he instantly was enraged on behalf of his favorite concubine because he was like, how could my son do something like this? Why would he attack this woman who he knows is my concubine? What is wrong with this kid? You know what? I'm just going to have him killed. So he summoned his seven. (laughs) Yeah. So much for blood being thicker than water. Am I right? Yay. But you know what? This guy is believing women. (laughs) Which point in his favor. Yes. Yeah. Except. But in this story, yeah. But But in this story, he shouldn't. But like in general. Okay. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, all right. So he immediately summoned the his seven viziers and he ordered them to take hold of his son, the prince, and kill him. And the seven viziers like looked at each other and they were like, no, 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 no. You don't want to kill your son. You would regret it. And the father was like, no, I wouldn't regret it. He did something awful. I want you to go murder him. So the viziers were like, mm, okay, let us talk amongst ourselves. So they get together and they're like, okay, listen, the king, all he ever wanted was the son. It was a miracle that he got the son in like the first place. If we kill him 
and the king regrets his decision, he's going to be mad at us for killing his favorite son. <laughs> his like only son. Yeah. So we need to stop him from making this choice, which I think it's hilarious that the like the vizier is the thing that they're worried about. It's like their own is skin. is their their own skin. That's what they're worried. They're like he's going to be mad, and then he's going to come after us. He's going to blame us for this. And so the first vizier came forward and promised for that for the next twenty four hours he would do everything he could to stop the king from killing his son. And so he went in front of the king. And he said, your majesty, had fate provided you with a thousand sons, you would not have brought yourself to have one of them killed on the word of a slave girl who may be telling the truth, but may be lying. There may be a trick on her part directed against her son. And the king asked, do you know anything about the wiles of women, vizier? And the vizier said, yes. And then he told the tale of the merchant and his parrot. So the vizier begins, O king, there was a merchant who was often on his travels. And he goes on to tell the story about how this merchant had a beautiful wife and he like guarded her jealously because he was so obsessed with her. And because of that, one of the things that he put in place in order to guard his wife and, and watch after, afraid that someone's going to come and try to steal her from him, was he bought a parrot, which would be around the house and tell him what happened while he was gone. While the merchant was away on one of his long journeys, his wife fell in love with this young man who came to visit her. And, you know, she granted certain favors to him during her husband's absence. Yeah, she it up did. To, you to imagine what those favors are. So when the merchant got back, the parrot told him what had happened. He's like, there was this young man came to visit your wife and she granted him the greatest favor. And so, the merchant was none too pleased at hearing this, and he was like, man, I'm so mad. I am going to kill this woman. But the woman kind of figures out what's going on, and she goes up to him and he's like, no, please listen. It's not what you think. What Do you think this bird knows what it's talking about? I will show you that this bird is lying. Go stay at your friend's house tonight. Sleep over there. Come back tomorrow, and you question this bird, and I'll show you whether or not it's telling the truth. So the husband's like, okay, fine. He goes off to his friend's house. Night comes. And when night comes, his wife takes like a piece of leather and she covers the cage. And then she starts like sprinkling water on top of this mat and just like fanning it with a fan. And she brought like a, a light close to like flash some light at the side of the, the cage and doing all these things and went on like this until morning. And then the husband comes back and the wife says, okay. Go and ask the bird what happened last night. And so the merchant goes and asks the bird. He's like, okay, what happened? And the bird's like, oh, man, I couldn't see or hear anything. And he's like, uh, why not? He's like, well, because of the rain and the wind and there was thunder and lightning. It was just I couldn't I couldn't see or hear anything because it was all of this was going on. And the merchant's like, okay, wait, hold up. It did not rain. There was no thunder. None of this happened. And the bird's like, I only told you what I heard and saw, you know, with my own eyes and ears. And so the man is like, oh, man, okay. I'm glad I didn't kill my wife because this bird is a liar. And the woman at this point, seeing that her husband believes that the bird is a liar, is like, look, you were willing to kill me on the word of this bird? Like, we are not okay until you kill this bird. And so the guy's like, all right, that's fair. Merchant kills the bird. Well, a few days later, while he's 
at home, he sees this young man coming out of the house, kind of sneaking off from a rendezvous with his wife, and he realizes that the bird was telling the truth, and his wife was the one that lied, and he regretted killing the bird, and went immediately to slit his wife's throat, swearing that he would never marry again. <laughs> Jeez, dude. <laughs> Yipes. So when the first vizier was done telling the story, he told the king, I have only told you this, your majesty, because you need to be shown the extent of women's wiles. <laughs> And you should not act out of haste to put your son to death so quickly. And the king was like, you know what? Yeah, that that story really has touched me. And you're right. I probably should wait and hold off on killing my son. So then his favorite concubine went to him and she was like, my king, why are you neglecting to bring me justice? Why are you neglecting to kill your son? You should just do it. If you're allowing this injustice just because he is your son, then I want the Lord to punish you in the way that you are too weak to punish your own son. And she's like, don't you know about the dangers of listening to evil viziers <laughs> just like in the story of the enchanted spring <laughs> so then she starts telling a tale and for this episode jeff and i are switching he's telling vizier stories and i'm going to be telling the stories of the favorite concubine just so that jeff doesn't have to do the back and forth all by himself <laughs> So, the story of the Enchanted Spring. So, there was once a king with a beautiful daughter, and in another land, there was a king and his beautiful, handsome son. And, like what happens in most stories, where there are two equally beautiful men and women, they were betrothed to each other to be married. But, the princess had a cousin who was in love with her, which that's not, that's not great for cousins, but it wasn't <laughs> abnormal. So uh, the cousin had grown up with his princess cousin and was in love with her and was super, super jealous when she was betrothed to be married to this other prince. So what this cousin decided to do was to send a letter and some gifts to the opposing king, the prince's father's vizier. So the cousin writes this letter saying, I am in love with my cousin and you would be doing me such a huge favor if you would find a way for the prince to get gone so that I can marry my cousin. And the vizier was like, oh my goodness, I really love it when people send me money and <laughs> jewels and valuable things. And I would love to help you out. And the cousin was like, great. So when the prince was getting ready to go over to meet his bride so that they could be married, the vizier was sent with the prince with all of these like, like golds and 
treasures and all these, you know, things to bring to the wedding party. And as they were walking across the desert on their way out, the prince said, oh, man, I'm really thirsty. I wish that there was a place where I could go and get a drink. And the vizier was like, oh, prince, I know just the perfect place for you to go that nobody else knows about. Come with me. I'll take you to this spring. So they go off, the two of them alone together to this secret spring that was nestled in this like rocky valley and they get there and immediately the prince jumps off of his horse goes over to the spring and starts drinking up the water and when he starts drinking up the water in this spring he turns into a beautiful woman and when he looks down at himself and sees that he has turned into a woman he is absolutely horrified <laughs> and is like, what is happening to me? What is wrong? And the vizier was like, oh, my gosh, how did that even happen? <laughs> That's so weird and random. I guess you're not going to be able to get married to that princess now. You should come with me so that we can, like, go show you to the princess so that they know, like, what happens to you. And the prince was like, no, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving here. Uh, like, uh, maybe the, the spring will help. Do I, I can't leave. I cannot leave. I'm going to write a letter for you to give to my father. You need to just go back to the kingdom with all of this stuff and take this letter to my father explaining what has happened and why, like, I can't come out, <laughs> like why I, I have to stay here. And the vizier was like, oh, okay. If you think that's the best thing to do, I guess you should just write a letter to your dad. So the prince wrote a letter to his dad, sent it with the vizier. The vizier went off and, uh, the prince was left by this enchanted spring just crying and lamenting his fate. Meanwhile, the vizier wrote a letter to the cousin being like, guess what? I totally took care of our problem. No worries. <laughs> and the cousin, Mission you know, is like, like rubbing his hands like, yes, it's finally happening for me. Um, so the prince is sitting there at the spring, just lamenting what has happened to him. And then a mysterious writer comes riding up. And the rider sees this woman sitting by the side of the spring crying and is like, oh, my goodness, are you a prince that's been turned into a woman? <laughs> and the prince who had been turned into a woman was like, yes, that's exactly what happened to me. <laughs> How did you know? How did you know? And this mysterious writer was like, because I am the prince of the king of the jinn and this is a secret spring that is only known to one human your vizier <laughs> and the the jinn so yeah we all know that this was here how did you get here when only one man knows where it is and the prince realizing he had been tricked greater laments you know his fate and the the prince of the jinn was like, oh, no, 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 don't worry, don't worry. I'm going to take you back to my kingdom 
And then nearby my kingdom, we have another secret spring that will fix this. And he was like, oh, great. That's fantastic. They got on their horses and they rode all night long. And in the morning, the prince was like, I don't know where I am. I've never seen this place before. And the djinn was like, yes, because we've been able to magically run a year's journey through the desert in one night. Because djinn are interdimensional beings. Mm, love it. I've actually been reading about that. They exist in the space between spaces. The spaces that are around us that we can't see. Yeah. They're inside of those spaces, and so nice. they can move through them. That's awesome. It is quite awesome. Anyway, so <laughs> that's why sometimes you can see them and sometimes you can't. And then if you throw a peach pit and you strike someone and kill them, <laughs> that it's not your fault, but it is because you shouldn't have been throwing stuff. Anyway, so the prince of the djinn takes this sobbing woman, prince, to this secluded space and there there is another spring that is flowing and he says drink of this water this is called the women's spring because if you drink it it will turn you into a man jeff why is it called the women's spring? Uh, yeah i don't know i think it should be the other way around but if okay if i was naming springs i would name the one that he was just at the women's spring because it turns you into a woman. And then the yeah. one that he just drank out of the men's spring because that one turns you, it turns you into a man. But maybe right. the women's spring is called the women's spring because, because women of, drink out of it to become yeah. men. If it's like, if you're a woman, this is the spring that you want to come to. Yeah. It's very confusing though. If you are. Yeah, it is very confusing. I mean, there's an argument that could be made either way. Yeah, but I feel like the the most user-friendly version of that would be to like the one that turns you into a man, the man spring. Yeah. The one that turns you a woman, woman spring. Like I understand that the people who drink out of it are probably the opposite gender of I'm assuming. Yeah. I think here's the thing. It, it needs mm -hmm. to be even more specific. Not just men spring and women spring. It's like the spring that turns you into a man spring, the yeah. spring that turns you into a woman spring. That way there's no confusion. You just. There's no confusion, but it's very wordy. Like it's quite redundant. the mouthful. But when, when the consequences of drinking <laughs> from the spring are as big as they are, I think it deserves to be clearly communicated. That's all. I guess so. So the prince woman drank from the woman's spring and then became himself again. And. Then the prince of the djinn called on a friend who happened to be a massive Efret, <laughs> which scared the prince a little bit because he wasn't expecting to see that. But he climbed onto the shoulder of the Efret, which, fun fact, if people don't remember, you can only ride on the shoulder of an Efret if you know all of the names of God. Oh. It doesn't say that in this story, but in another story, that was something that was specified that like you can only ride on somebody's shoulders if you know all the secret names of God. Um, wow. But anyway, I don't know if this applied in that story, but I just remembered that from a separate story. And considering they exist in the same universe, I was just going to just going to go ahead and assume. Yeah. So anyway. 
The prince is instructed to close his eyes because they have to fly up so high that they're going to pass by heaven and it would be detrimental to the prince if he were to see any of the angels or the gates of heaven. So Hmm. he closes his eyes. They sail through the sky. And then when he lands, he lands on the balcony of the princess's house. And it's funny because the father, the like king of the princess, when he like sees him, he's like, other people can be seen coming through doors, but you've come down from the sky. (laughs) (laughs) This king is like, wow, what an entrance. (laughs) Like even more impressed, like with this guy. And the cousin, of course, when he sees that the prince has appeared, he is horrified, terribly upset. And the night of the wedding, when he knows that the prince and the princess have been together physically, he dies from pure jealous passion. (laughs) Wow, dramatic much, dude? Yeah. And so the prince then tells his father what the vizier had tried to do, and the vizier was put to death. And so... Our king's favorite concubine says to him, I hope, your majesty, that almighty God will allow you to get the better of your own viziers. And I ask you to right the wrong your son did me. And after hearing this story, the king decides she is right and he needs to have (laughs) his son killed. And that's when another vizier shows up and he decides to tell the story of the woman and her two lovers. So this vizier is like, hold on one second, sir, because I know another story about the wiles of women. Because there was once a man who was the king's guard, and he would stand by the king with his sword drawn all day to protect the king. And this guy was in love with a young lady that he was acquainted with. And he would often send his page with messages for this young lady. Well, one day while this page is there with this young lady, having just delivered a message, he's like, dang, you know what? Girl is pretty sexy. I'm going to make my move. So he, you know, moves in on her and she is all about it. So they start getting acquainted, granting one another favors (laughs) as the other story would have, would have said, and yeah what does the story say it's like fondling and squeezing this one does get a little more explicit than the other one let's keep it in the granting favors arena here (laughs) and he was like hey can we take this thing all the way home (laughs) it's pretty much (laughs) easy he asked her to lie with him and she says yes so while they were getting acquainted there's a knock on the door and so the girl is like oh my gosh what am i gonna do she puts this page in the cellar. She opens the door and it's the guard who sent the page guessing like, hey, I've got a moment. I can slip away. So he comes in not realizing that the page had been there and he you know, sits down on the bed with her, starts joking with her. And then they start you know, kissing and granting one another favors <laughs> when suddenly the woman's husband knocks at the door and the, the guard is like, wait a second, who's that? And she's like, oh, it's my husband. Seemingly, this guy did not know that she was married. I, he seems very surprised. So she's like, okay, get up. Here's what you need you to do. I need you to uh, draw your sword and stand over there. And then you just start yelling at me and, and insulting me. 
when my husband comes in, just see him and, and store him out. So the guy's like, okay. He goes there, starts yelling abuse at her. The husband comes in, sees the guy standing with the sword in hand. Is like, what is going on? And at seeing the husband, the guard like legitimately feels ashamed at what he's done. And he's like, okay, yeah, this is really easy to get myself out of this very awkward situation. So he leaves. And the husband's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What, what was that all about? And the woman is like, oh, I'm so lucky that you came and you did. You rescued me from death. Like I was just up on the roof minding my own business when this page comes running in and he says he's being chased. Some guy's trying to kill him. And then this guy comes in holding a sword. So I hid the page in the cellar so that he could be safe. And this guy with the sword, this guard was just like threatening he was going to kill me. And I'm just so glad that you came in and you did because otherwise I'd be a goner. And he's like, you did a good thing protecting this page he goes down to the cellar and lets this page boy out he's like come on out no one's gonna hurt you like everything's cool now and the page is a little hesitant to come out but he does (laughs) and the husband's like calm down calm down no one's gonna hurt you and the page then calms down they both leave and none were the wiser as to the trick that the woman had pulled on them all it makes me think that the story should be called The Woman and Her Three Lovers, should it not? I guess her husband isn't one of her lovers. Yeah, I guess it's like her husband and then her lovers, like the people that she, the two people that she's conducting an, yeah. affair, an illicit affair with. I think my favorite part of that story is just that, like, the page had no idea why the husband was being so cool about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like, no, none of them knew the full truth of the story. Like even the guard, the guard knew the most. Yeah. Like the guard at least knew like, Oh, okay. I kind of tricked the, the husband into thinking nothing was happening because I was just there to yell. Yeah. But it's also kind of like, that does not paint him in the best light. You know, he's got to have thought like, okay, this is a weird plan, but for some reason he decided to run. Yeah. But whatever gets me out of this without being in a confrontation (laughs) with this like husband. But for me, like the funniest is like the page because like the husband's with him. He's just, he's just like, Hey buddy, it's fine. It's cool. Like everything's going to be okay. Now you don't have to be scared or worried. And this guy's like, Oh wow. This man's really being really cool. about This This guy's really understanding (laughs) about, like me hooking up with his wife, like, wow, really, really chill husband. But it's like, no, that's not the situation. But whew. so when the vizier had finished telling this story, he's like, this is just one of many examples of the wiles of women. And so we all need to be aware of relying on what they say. And the king changed his mind about having his son killed. He was like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I do see the point you're making there. That was that was pretty sneaky of that lady. So yeah, you know what? I don't think that I'm going to kill my son. I don't think I'm going to have him killed. So this time she got a little bit more dramatic. She showed up to the king's uh court holding this cup and she's like Inside this cup, there is poison. And if you are not going to avenge the wrongs committed against me by having your son killed, I am going to drink this cup of poison. And the king, seeing his favorite concubine about to, like, off herself, he was like, no, 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 don't, no. Like, you you don't have to kill yourself. You don't have to be that dramatic. And she's like, no, I do, because the viziers that you have 
here, they are so much more wily and cunning than I will ever be. And I'll never be able to persuade you, even if I were to tell you of the story of the goldsmith and the singing girl. And he was like, no, no, no. Tell me the story of the goldsmith and the singing girl. And she's like, okay, if I have to. (laughs) So she starts to tell the story of the goldsmith and the singing girl. There was once a goldsmith. And he was getting older in years and he was single and he was over at a friend's house drinking wine, which was one of his favorite things to do. (laughs) And while he was at his friend's house drinking wine, he saw a picture on the wall of just the most beautiful woman in the world that he had ever seen. And he was like, oh, my gosh, I am so in love with this woman in this picture. She is gorgeous. And his friend was like. Buddy, that's a painting. And he was like, I know, but the woman who is the model for this painting is must be so incredibly gorgeous, so beautiful. I wish that I could meet her so that I could be with her and love her. And his friend was like, buddy, it might be modeled off of somebody, but it could have just come from like the painter's imagination. Like, you don't know. Don't fall in love with a painting. That's insane. But this man would not be the only person to fall in love with a painting. It happens very often. All the time. It's actually like like a named trope in like European um, fairy tales Hmm. and folklore. But we won't get into that today. That is a topic for another day. Yeah, I just know my first love was a painting, so it happens. Yeah. (laughs) So the goldsmith to his friend, he was like, well, I would need you to like find who is the painter of this. Can you find him and ask him like who this painting is of? Because I'm absolutely in love with this woman. And so his friend was like, yeah, I guess I can ask the painter. So the friend tracks down the painter, asks the painter, hey, I've got this painting of yours. And is it from a model or is it just like your imagination? And the painter was like, oh, yeah, no, that that was a model. Um, there is a king in this like neighboring city who has a vizier who has a singing girl. And this was a word that was also used to describe the favorite concubine was a singing girl. Mm. And what a singing girl is very, very quickly is it's kind of the equivalent of like, um, a Japanese geisha where it is there associated with sex work but more than that they are like cultured women who play instruments sing songs are artistic cultured like they just have a lot of not like there's a lot of skill and talent that goes into it yeah but it often gets overshadowed by the association with their sexuality yeah so The painter's like, oh, yeah, it is the singing girl that belongs to this one vizier in this other kingdom. And the goldsmith is like, cool, thank you for that information. That is wonderful. So he goes to that neighboring kingdom and he's talking with some of the people in the area, just trying to be like, hey, what can you tell me about the king? And people are like, oh, the king, he's a really, really great king, really, really nice. He just has this one thing. He hates magicians. Like, he does not like close-range magic. No. <laughs> Do not dare pull out a deck of cards in front of that man. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so like one thing about this king, he does not stand for magic. If it's like a person who like alchemy, no witchcraft, no anybody who is associated with any type of like supernatural magic practice, he has them taken outside the city limits and dumped into a pit until they die. (laughs) And so the goldsmith was like, okay, that's good information. Thank you for that. And then he's like, oh, what can people tell me about the different viziers that this king has? So people were telling him about like the different viziers and their different qualities and stuff until one of them mentions this one specific vizier and where he stayed in the palace and where his singing girls and other people that like work for him or in his like entourage where they live. So the goldsmith is just like collecting this information. He's like, good, 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 good. So this one night, it says he gathered the tools of a thief and he snuck into the chambers where the vizier's singing girl was. And he saw her laying there looking as beautiful, if not more so than her painting. There was a candle at her feet. There's a candle at her head lighting her body gracefully. And he was like, oh my gosh, this is the woman that I love and I want to have her and I have to have her. So he pulls out a knife and stick Uh. with me because he's doing some weird stuff, but he's got a plan. (laughs) So he goes over to her and he gives her a superficial knife wound on her body buttocks and this wakes her up as it would (laughs) anyone when somebody knifes your butt so she wakes up and she's terrorized because there's a dude standing over her with a knife and she was like oh my gosh please do not kill me i'm not worth killing i'm not worth murdering here take my chest of jewelry so she hands him this little box that she has of all of her jewelry and she's like these are all my possessions i'm not worth killing please don't kill me just take these jewelry so he grabs this box of jewelry and he runs off into the night so the next day the goldsmith goes to the king and he says i have something very important that i need to talk to the king about so He's brought in to the king and the king is like, who are you? I've never seen you before in my life. Who are you? And he's like, I'm actually a stranger to this land. And last night I didn't make it into the city limits before the gates of the city were closed. And so I was sleeping outside on the ground of the city limits. And as I was sleeping there, I heard a weird noise and it was like the cackling of women. And I opened my eyes and there were four women riding on broomsticks and fans uh, uh so i'm assuming like handheld like fans yeah and brooms and he's like i realized that they were four witches and as they were flying like low over me one of them saw me and she came over to assault me and she tried to whip me and I lashed out with my knife and I was able to cut her on her buttocks and she screamed in fright and she dropped this container of jewelry. I am a humble poor man who is going to 
on a pilgrimage and I have no use for all of this treasure and finery. I just wanted you to know that there's some like, you know, magic witches tomfoolery going on in your kingdom that you might not know about. And here's this like container of jewelry. And the king was like, oh my gosh, I hate magic. <laughs> I don't know and if you know this about me. I don't know I if you know this about me. really hate magic. I really don't like it. I hate that so much. I will definitely handle this. Thank you for this information, good man. So the golden smith like sneaks off and he leaves the rest to follow. And what followed was that the king opened up the container of jewelry and inside of this container of jewelry, he sees a piece of jewelry that he had given to his vizier. Mm. And he called that specific vizier over and the vizier came over and he's like, what's going on? And he's like, um, so I heard this crazy story about witches and one of them's got a cut on their butt and they had this jewelry. Who did you give this jewelry to? And the vizier was like, I gave that to my favorite singing girl. And the king was like, well, bring her in here and let's look at her butt. So they bring her in and the vizier looks at her butt and he's like, yep, there is a cut on her butt. And the king was like, oh my gosh, she's a witch. You know, I don't like that. That's my least favorite thing in the world. Take her immediately and throw her into the pit outside the city limits. So this helpless woman who has had her butt cut and her jewelry stolen (laughs) gets dragged out of the kingdom and thrown into a pit. So she's sitting in this pit and the goldsmith comes over and he leans over to the guard and he was like, oh my gosh, this singing girl does not deserve to be in this pit. Something horrible has happened where somebody has falsely accused her of being a witch. (laughs) And the guard was like, oh my gosh, are you serious? She's not really a witch. And he's like, no, somebody has played a horrible trick on her. And has like tricked the palace into thinking that she is a witch. I'll give you a thousand dinars if you help me pull her out. Yeah. And the guard was like, oh, yeah, I'll definitely do that. But you have to promise me not to go back into the city or else they'll see her. I'll lose my job. It'll be bad for me. And the goldsmith was like, no problem. I will take her out of the city out of the goodness of my heart. (laughs) And so they pull her out of the pit. She gets given to the goldsmith. and taken off into the goldsmith's city. What a scumbag. And so the king's favorite concubine ends her story by saying, look, king, at the cunning wiles of men. Your viziers are trying to stop you from avenging me. But when I drink this poison and I am standing before a just judge, you know, God, He will take vengeance on you for me. And she's like, you know, about to take the poison. uh, She's like, oh, and the king is like, no, stop. I will order to have my son be executed. (laughs) This guy's just so easily convinced about like anything. It's like just the, the most recent person to tell him something. He's like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you're right. So one of the viziers jumps up and he decides to be a voice of reason in the king's ear. And he begins to tell the tale of the wife who made her husband sieve dirt. So this vizier jumps up and he's like, oh yeah, well, I've heard a story. Let me tell you this story about the wiles of women. 
And he starts off on this story about, it's like, there was this woman who was given some money by her husband, says a dirham. I don't know how much money that is. I think it's like one one hundredth of a dinar. So a dirham is to a dinar what a penny is to a dollar. But not that those are equivalent. Yeah, I'm like, possibly. Because you can't buy much rice for a penny. Yeah, but I do know that it is a lot less than a dinar. Yeah, so he was given, she was given this small-ish amount of money to go buy rice. And she goes to the rice seller, and he gives her the rice. But then he's like, oh, I'm going to make a move on you. And he does. And he says a really creepy thing to her. And he says, rice is only nice with sugar. And if you want the sugar, then come into my shop for an hour. Which I'm not sure if there's like wordplay and double entendre in the original language that it is, but it's like in English, that's definitely some great wordplay there. Like, oh yeah, it's good with sugar. You want some sugar? Come, I'll give you some sugar. So she goes in (laughs) and once she goes in, he kind of stops for a second and tells the slave who's working there, he's like, hey, get, you know, a, a dirham worth of sugar for this woman. But he gives him a secret sign as he's saying that. And so the slave's like, ah, a a dirham of sugar, wink. And so instead, he takes the woman's kerchief, empties the rice that was in it that she had already purchased and fills it with dirt instead. And instead of putting sugar in there, he puts stones, which interestingly makes me think that like the sugar wasn't like powder granulated sugar, like it might've been in more of like a, bigger solid like rock kind of a form if they're trying to like play play stones for sugar rather than like sand or something yeah i would say that too have you ever bought like uh palm sugar no oh like in thailand when we would buy like palm sugar to cook something it was in like a puck wow Interesting. It was like it was like a a puck of sugar. So you're probably like I'm like I wouldn't be surprised if you're right that it that it was in a it was like a stone chunk of sugar. It it just caught me because when I first read it, I was like, why would he put stones in that? Doesn't make any sense. And I was like, oh, I'm just thinking of sugar the way that I think of sugar, and it could sugar could have looked different in how they sold it back then and in that place. Anyway, so he puts it soil instead of the rice, stones instead of sugar, and an hour goes by, she comes back out. The slave who works with this rice seller gives her the handkerchief. She takes it on home to her husband. And her husband opens it up and he's like, What is this? And she'd been off getting like a cooking pot and she's like, Oh, it's the rice. Oh, but she kind of like catches herself and sees what had gone on. And she immediately is like, Ah, I've been tricked. And so the husband's like, Seinfeld, what's the deal? And so she's standing there with a a cooking pot in her hand so she's trying to think of like what's a lie that makes sense with having a cooking pot but i knew that there wasn't rice and stuff in there and so she's like oh silly me i meant to go get a sieve instead of this pot Uh, because what happened was when i went to the market to buy the rice i accidentally dropped the dirham into the dirt and I couldn't find it. And I was like too ashamed to kind of like hunt around while everyone was watching. I didn't want to lose it. So I just gathered up all the soil and the stones that were in the place where I dropped it. And I brought them back here. And, you know, she runs off to get the sieve and she's like, so here, you know, your eyesight's way better than mine. 
I I couldn't find it. So go through and and sieve through all of this dirt and these rocks so that we can find the dirham. And he sat down, was sieving the soil, not realizing that he had been tricked, just sitting there getting himself all covered in dirt. And he says, this, your majesty, is just one more example of women's wiles. One thing I want to touch on before, like I go, like before we like go on, that's interesting about this story is, because uh, you, you kind of mentioned with the sugar and if it was like a yeah. double entendre or something, the there is a word that could possibly be a double entendre in this story, and it's the word sieve. Uh-huh. There's a book called The Perfume Garden that is like a sexual book from the time. Mm-hmm. And one of the chapters in it, chapter nine, is called Sundry Names Given to Sexual Organs of Women. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like looking through that chapter just for Some like casual reading as you do. Just, you know. <laughs> when I get a Google in. <laughs> And I was struck by one of the names that was like just a colloquial nickname for a um, vagina. It's actually for the vulva. It is specifically what it says is the sieve. Hmm. And I'm going to quote here. This vulva on receiving a member seems to sift it all over, below, right and left, fore and aft, until the moment of pleasure arrives. So I guess, like, the shaking of the hips or something relates somehow in their mind with, like, a sieve. I don't get it. Me either. But one of the nicknames (laughs) was the sieve um and so it's interesting because it's the story is like the wife who made her husband sieve dirt so it's like instead of him getting sexual pleasure he is sieving dirt while the merchant was sieving her (laughs) right in like that like double word play yeah i did think like sieve dirt sounds like a great like kind of insult to throw at somebody like somebody like cuts you off in traffic it's like hey sieve dirt buddy Sieve dirt. Hilarious. I would feel insulted if someone said that to me. Yes. <laughs> you wouldn't you wouldn't quite understand why you're insulted, but, but you I would definitely be. would be. Yeah. Oh yeah. You like understand the tone. So I also have a little I have a quote from the Histography of Islamic Egypt circa 950 to the 1800s. And it's a chapter entitled Ali al-Baghdadi and the Joy of Mamluk Sex. This chapter was written by Robert Irwin. <laughs> <laughs> of course, but, Robbie, our man. Yeah, like our man. Um, it says, the notion that, for example, some women used going to the shops as a pretext for commencing adulterous affairs is not a theme which is confined to the stories of the Thousand and One Nights. According to Ib al-Hajj's moralizing 14th century treatise, the Mudkal, so this is a a quote from a 14th century text, which is around the same time that these stories were starting to be like put down like onto paper. 
A shopkeeper, quote, must be careful when a woman comes to buy something to look at her behavior, for if she was one of those women dressed up in delicate clothes, exposing her wrists or some of her adornments, and speaking in a tender and soft voice, he should leave the selling transaction and give her his back until she leaves the shop peacefully. (laughs) So there was just this kind of understanding that, like, when women were out shopping, there was a chance where, like, they're on their own, away from their husbands, but they're also interacting with possibly members of the opposite sex, and that this could be a time when, if any sneaky business was going to go on, this would be a time. And so there was writing from this, like, period of time saying, like, hey, remember that you know, a woman is coming around and she's showing off her wrists. She might be a loose woman. And if you don't want to get accused of something, like you need to do your best to like back away from her. And so it's interesting that like in this story, we see that idea of like a woman is going shopping and a man's like, hey, you want a little sugar with that? And she was like, "Ooh, yes, please. And to like us, it might be like, whoa, what? It like the same kind of yeah. like possibility is in like a porno that's like, here's a package. And they're like, how will I pay for this package? It seems like a very loose pretext for like somebody right. to yeah, start yeah, yeah. an affair or just randomly hook up. But it apparently was a kind of like a common story thing. Yeah, Again, an idea that it at least was like, was presumed may not actually have any indication that if that's something that happened or not. Cause it's just like, okay, women be like this or whatever. Yeah. But because that existed, it makes sense in a store, in the story context that the shopkeeper would be like, Hey, you want some sugar? And she's like, of course I'm here shopping with my wrists exposed. That's what I'm <laughs> looking for, you know? And they'd be like, Oh yeah, that's we've, this is, this is just how it is. This yeah. Is Exactly. It's like um, there used to be tales called like traveling salesmen tales where in the United States when traveling salesmen was a thing there, it was just kind of this, this idea that women who were at home alone, if a traveling salesman showed up, they would be like tempted to cheat on their husbands and do something. Whether that actually was like a thing that was happening, probably not. There was just a cultural fear that was there because that was a time when like a wife might be alone and a strange man might be interested. Would approach, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, exactly what you're saying. That's that's a thing. Yeah. That was in the consciousness of the time. Yeah, that was happening. But it doesn't mean it was a thing that was happening. It was just a story that people would be familiar with. Exactly. So, when the vizier had finished telling this story, the king, of course, was like, oh, since that's the most recent story that I've heard, I'm not going to (laughs) kill my... (laughs) I'm not going to believe this, like, concubine, and I'm not going to have my son killed. (laughs) Like just once, just once I want the pattern to break and him to hear a story and be like, you know what? That story is a little weak. Um, (laughs) I'm still going to kill him. And another vizier then has to come and back up like before she has another chance to tell the story, you know, like just throw us off a little. But I don't think that that's what happens. No. 
it is just like, oh, that's the most recent thing I've heard. So yeah, I I agree with you. I'm excited to see how this whole confrontation comes to an end because again, it's like someone's just going to have to shut the other people up. Like someone's going to run out of stories before the other one and whoever still has stories going, they're going to be the ones that win. That's what I predict. Okay. Well, you're going to, you're, I feel like you're going to like the end. I'm not saying that's what happens. I'm just, I'm just saying. You're saying, cause you're I, gonna, I'll like it gonna, either because I'm right or I'll like it because I'll be surprised. Yes, exactly. Or none of the above. There's always a third option. Maybe I'll be horrified and that's why. Well <laughs> <laughs> and, and then an Ifrit came in and ate everyone. Yep. The end. So when the king rescinded the order to have his son executed and the concubine <laughs> heard about this, she ran into the room shrieking, kindling a large fire. <laughs> upping the drama but here's the thing though like she's going there's seven of these viziers and they're like all like tag teaming you know and it's like and she is doing this all on her own she's working so much harder and so she has to resort to some pretty you know extreme measures so she's got the grit the tenacity the perseverance those are all admiral qualities in her The the lying less the lying and trying to get someone killed for it like yeah unjustly like I love that you're I love that you're like the theatrics ten out of ten this (laughs) girl is committed to her performance she is going all out she is in her personal character (laughs) and the purposes for which she is exerting all this effort I can't condone or agree with or anything but I you know. So the girl runs shrieking into the room, kindling a large fire. And she, it says the attendants brought her into the presence of the king and they were like holding her by the arm. So they were like holding her back from doing anything crazy. (laughs) She's like, hold me back, hold me back. (laughs) And she's like, she's like, king, Unless you avenge me, I will throw myself into this fire because I have no wish to live. I'm coming here. I wrote my will and I am giving away all of my wealth as alms to the poor. For I am determined to die and you will be as sorry as the king who tortured his female bath attendant. And the king's like, (laughs) who? She's got the good, like, you know, she baits him really well. She doesn't just yeah. go into the tale. She gets him to, you know, she's like, th- throws out this reference as if it's so obvious. And he's like, well, now I gotta hear the story. Yeah. The concubine starts her tale. Oh, King, there was once a pious, devout, and religious woman who worked at the palace of a king as an attendant for the queen. And one day when the queen went to take a bath, she removed her necklace, which was worth a thousand dinars. And she handed it to this like devout bath attendant woman who worked for her and said, put this in a safe place so that I can get it when I come back from my bath. And This devout woman was like, of course, and she tucked it under her prayer rug because she knew that it would be safe there. And so she did her prayers on the prayer mat 
And then she was called away very quickly. So she got up and she left the room to take care of something really quickly. But when she left, a bird flew into the room and it disturbed her prayer mat and the necklace came out a little bit from underneath the prayer mat. And the bird, of course, drawn to shiny things, (laughs) grabbed this necklace and flew off. So the woman came back into the room, resumed her prayers, and when the queen came to her and asked her for the necklace, she reached underneath her prayer mat but found nothing. And she told the queen, I'm so sorry, I don't know where I put this necklace. I put it under my prayer mat, but it's gone. And the queen said, well, did somebody come in here? Who else has been in this room except you? And the woman said, no one has been in here except me. I'm the only person who came into this room. I'm the only one who had access to this necklace. The queen was in a rage and she went to her husband and said, this necklace has been lost. I'm so upset. And he says, well, then you need to torture that woman until she tells you where her necklace is. And so his wife started to torture her attendant with fire and beatings. (sighs) And in spite of all of this torture, this like devout attendant could not tell her where the necklace was because she didn't know where it was. (laughs) And so, you know, they locked this woman up so that they could periodically torture her for information about what happened to this necklace. So a couple days later, the King and his wife are sitting outside Talking with each other, it says they were on an island in a pool in the middle of the palace grounds. So I'm guessing that there's like this pool of like this like pool and they have like a little island built in the middle of this pool. So they're sitting, you know, just relaxing, luxuriating in their fancy garden and whatnot. And they look up towards the palace when they see some like glittering glinting coming from near the roof of the palace. And they're like, what is that? And so they send a servant to go and see what is that that is shimmering up on the roof line. And when the servant gets there, she discovers the necklace inside of a bird's nest. And instantly the king and the wife realize what they have done. And so they, they pull this woman out from the prison that she was in and they apologize for not believing her, for beating her, for torturing her with fire. And they offer to give her a large sum of money. And this woman says that she has no use for their money and that she instead is wants them to give the money away to the poor and that she would never enter into another person's house again, but would wander into the mountains and valleys to worship God <laughs> until she died. And the king and the queen were racked with the guilt of that for the rest of their lives, knowing that they had acted poorly with the servants that they had in their life. And the concubine says, see, king, don't you see how you are mistreating me (laughs) the way that this man mistreated his servant? And the king was like, oh, my gosh, you are absolutely right. I am mistreating you by not having my son killed. I will have him executed immediately. (laughs) And so then another vizier comes and begins to tell the tale 
the story of the Ifrit's beloved. So this vizier steps up and is like, not so fast. I haven't told my story yet. So he begins that once there was a certain prince who went out alone on a pleasure trip. And as he was out on this trip by himself, he comes by this meadow with trees and birds and streams. He's like, this place is beautiful. I'm going to stop and I'm going to have a little picnic here. And so he sits down, he starts eating, and he notices this giant column of smoke like towering in the sky from kind of nearby where he is. And so he gets pretty freaked out. And he's like, what is going on? So he goes and he climbs a tree, half to hide, half to maybe get a better look. And from the top of the tree, he could see an Ifrit coming out of the stream, carrying on his head a chest that was locked. So the Ifrit takes the chest off of his head, puts it down, unlocks it, and he brings out a human woman. And the Ifrit sits her down in front of him. He puts his head in her lap and dozes off to sleep. Once the Ifrit was asleep, the woman gently picked his head up off of her lap and slid the chest underneath it to lay it back down, and she slipped out. And this woman seems like she's kind of like got this whole system down of like, okay, he takes me out, he falls asleep in my lap, I put this on so I can get up and have a little walk because she's been cramped up in this chest for who knows how long. So she's walking around taken in the scenery and she looks up in the tree and she's like hey there's a dude up there <laughs> and so she like sees her she's like hey come down here and he's like no 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 and he's like listen buddy if you don't come down here and do whatever i say i'm gonna wake this guy up and i'm gonna tell him about you and at that point he's gonna kill you and so the prince is like oh he gets all freaked out so he climbs down and she comes up to him she starts kissing his hands and feet and she's like hey let's exchange favors if you know what i mean (laughs) and without any hesitation he agreed to this and so they go on and they do it now he was threatened with death beforehand so there's no way to know how willing he was or not but But the text does say he (laughs) accepted this yeah Yeah. (laughs) and so (laughs) when he had done what she wanted which is exactly how the text puts it she tells him to give her his signet ring that was on his hand. And so he's like, oh, he hands it over. And she wraps it in this like silk handkerchief that she has. And basically she's adding it to this collection of over 80 other rings that she had already collected. And the guy's like, oh, what's with all the rings? And she's like, okay, well, it's a long story, but this Efrit, he snatched me from my father. Lock me in this chest. He's the only one that carries the key. He carries me around this thing. But he's super jealous. He can't stand to be away from me for any time at all, which is why he just like takes a nap in my lap. And so he's keeping me away from like my family and everything that I love. And in order to kind of get back at him from stealing me away from my life, I decided that I was going to sleep with any man that would have me. And so the number of rings that I have in here is the number of men that have taken me up on that offer. And then she's like, okay, now if you could please get out of here, he's going to be asleep for a little while longer. I think I can get one more ring in before he wakes up. (laughs) (laughs) And so the prince is like, this is incredible. This is unbelievable. I do not what's going on. Pleasure trip canceled. I'm going back to my dad's house. So when the prince gets back to his father's house, His father didn't know anything about what was going on, but he notices that this kid's ring is missing and he is 
mad. So he's like, you know what? The punishment for a missing signet ring, you are going to be put to death. So he sentences his son to death and leaves the throne room and goes to the palace. His viziers are like, whoa, 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 hold up, buddy. They come and they intervene and they calm the king down and they say, hey, you know what? Like, don't kill him. You're going to regret it. Just listen, listen to reason a little bit. And, you know, they were able to convince the king to spare his son. And having changed the king's mind, the prince was very thankful. He thanked the viziers and he complimented them on their wisdom in being able to convince their father to do the right thing. And he's like, you know what, for what you've done, I'm going to reward you most generously for your act of kindness in sparing me. And then he told them what happened and how he lost his ring. And the viziers were like, ha, well, that's good. Like, we didn't know any of that. We were just acting because we didn't want you to die. And we feel really good about that because turns out we made the right call. And with that, the vizier ends this story with a little tale about how a bunch of viziers came and stopped a guy from killing his son. And it was the right decision. (laughs) And the vizier says, look then, O king, at the wiles of women and what they do to men. And the king again withdrew his decision to have his son be killed. And this was the end of the seventh day. And so, like I said at the beginning, there's a lot of tales in between. Each one of the viziers says his part. There's more stories that the woman tells, all that. But we're ending it with, this was the last story told by the seventh vizier on the seventh day. And the next morning, the son was brought out of his room that Sindbad had put him away in for those seven days that he needed to be silent or else he would die. So Sinbad brings the son out and puts him in front of the king and the son makes an eloquent speech praising his father, the viziers, the state officials, thanking them for all the work that they had done to... Uh, stand up for him and stop his father from making the wrong decision. And everybody listens to his eloquent speech, his rhetorical skill, and his masterful delivery. (laughs) They're like, he's so amazing at talking. So his father was overjoyed to see his son and called him forward and kissed him. And he said, why have you stayed silent these seven days while this person has been accusing you of this? And Sindbad says, Master, his safety lay in saying nothing. The fates in his horoscope had foretold that if he talked within those seven days, it would only put him to death. But if he was silent, we knew that you and the viziers would do the right thing that they were supposed to do. And now the seven days has passed and the evil has passed thanks to our good fortune. And the king was delighted and he turned to his viziers and he said, if I had put my son to death, would the responsibility for the wrong have rested with me or with the slave girl or with Sinbad, his tutor? And everybody didn't know how to answer this question, but his amazing and incredible son was like, oh, I'm amazing in every way, father. Let me tell you a little story. And so he told him a very quick story of a girl who was once walking with a jug of water. And as she was walking with a jug of water to go and feed 
her master who was a merchant. A bird flew overhead carrying a viper and poison fell out of the viper's mouth while it was being squeezed by the bird. (laughs) And it dropped into the jug without the girl seeing. And she poured the glasses of water for the merchant and his friends and they drank and they all instantly died. Who father's fault was that? except for what fate allowed. Hmm. And the king was like, that is so eloquent. My son is so smart and so amazing. And the son said, I don't want you to punish anybody for what has happened. Send your concubine away for lying, but do not execute her. And so she was sent away and the son and the king lived long and happy lives forevermore the end nice i forgot about the whole like seven days time period so i was kind of right in the sense that it was like they were the ones they finished on the last day she didn't have another chance (laughs) and the whole horoscope thing that was interesting yeah so we're definitely going to talk about that this like idea of fate but first the very first thing that i want to talk about is the story of the ifrit's beloved that was that last story. Yes, I want to talk about that as well. <laughs> so, if you have listened to the first episode that we did back in January for the Thousand and One Nights, that story will sound extremely familiar. So, I have a quote from Stranger Magic by Marina Warner. It says, On the 602nd night, Sultan Shariar finds himself listening to a story. Shariar, listening to Shahrazad past the midpoint of the nights, finds himself looking at gathering shadows in the mirror of his own story of almost two years before. Will he fall forever into the pool of Shahrazad's memory, and we the readers with him? By Allah, this story is my story, and this case is my case, he cries out in Burton's translation, where the story eerily matches his even more closely, as it runs on, pulling in Shahrazad and Dunyazad and their father, the vizier. So, I had said we're two-thirds through the Thousand and One Nights, and it's hard to conceptualize the dates, but it's been almost two years of Shahrazad telling the tales of the mm-hmm. Thousand One Nights. And it's so interesting that this story pops up and it is the it's the outside frame story of the Thousand One Nights because this is something that happens to King Shariar and his brother. Yeah. Where they meet this woman who gets pulled out of a chest by a djinn and then she sleeps with them. What's interesting is that when they get to her, she has way more rings. Yeah. I can't remember. She had like a thousand or something, didn't she? Yeah. It was, was, yeah, it was like 873, something like that, where it was like a big number. And here she only has like 50 something. And so because Shahrazad is telling the story, she had to have heard the story before the same thing happened to King Shariar. Yeah. Because she would have heard this before, this story before 
the nights had even started. Yeah. For this to be a story that's in her repertoire, she would have right. had to have heard it before. Yeah. And so the number of rings is smaller, which is interesting because it it makes your mind think, wait, so this woman has been out there for how long collecting rings from like human beings uh-huh. from like all these men before she even got to King Shariar. And so it starts to pull the mind into this like loop of stories. Yeah. And there is actually versions of the thousand and one nights where this story is presented on the last night on the thousand and first night. And it then creates basically like an endless loop loop. Interesting. Where a king or like a prince who's been wronged then goes back and he's like angry and can't trust women because of what he has just seen happen to this djinn. And so he starts to kill women who marry him. And it puts the whole story into this like never ending cycle and puzzle of tales that's just spiraling in on itself. Yeah, it's super interesting. One thing that I thought of too was it was surprising to me when we did the very first episode and you told the full tale of the frame story that included this thing about him and his brother getting caught up in a tree and this basically the same story that the last vizier just told. Because when I've normally heard kind of the frame story and in the version that I first read, which is a very abridged version, and it's also like really old, I would have to go look actually whose translation it is or whatever. So I haven't really done that since we've started the podcast. But I remember like the frame story is very, 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 very short. Yeah. And it sounds like in that version and in a lot of the versions that I feel like I remember being familiar with, that the frame story exists presumably in kind of like what we would consider like the real world. Like there aren't gin, there isn't magic. It's like, this is a, a real king and this is just a real, like, you know, like stuff happens that could happen in reality. Yeah, of like a wife cheats on her husband. Yeah, he, he is very, very hurt. He has her killed. And then he starts marrying these women and killing them every night out of like vengeance. Yeah. And so like all, yeah, none of like all of that could happen. Right. So all that could have happened. And then, you know, in your extended, not your, but you know, in the full and extended version of it, like there is all this magic stuff, even in the frame story, which is interesting. But it made me think too, when we get to this point, like does Shariar comment on this being like, Hey, this story is crazy familiar because it's literally what happened to me. And you said that there aren't actually a ton of versions where he does like, yeah. Lots of times he doesn't comment on it. Yeah. So uh, Marina Warner notes like in Stranger Magic that one of the versions where he does comment on it is in Sir Richard Burton's version, which Sir Richard Burton was prone to adding stuff (laughs) is the nicest way of saying that. And so he was the one who was like, by Allah, this story is my story. In this case is my case. But in the Arabian Nights, that is the most like recent translation that is taking its translation from the early manuscripts that predate everything else. He 
doesn't comment on this story, which people might find interesting because he had a lot of comments and stuff to say when we were doing animal tales. Yeah. And so then when this story bumps up against it, he has nothing to say. Yeah. Which is interesting. And to me, it also points to something that we've talked about going back to the earlier text and were all of these stories put in here on purpose or was this more of a dumping ground and repository for any stories? And so, of course, there's going to be like repeats. Yeah. And we are past the point of the Syrian manuscript that is considered to be more purposefully put together. Yeah. And we're in the later tales, which include the Egyptian manuscripts, which are more of the like stories put in more seemingly at random. Yeah. There's also in this frame story of the wiles of women, this story is not the only story that repeats within the nights. There is the story of the evil vizier and the gula. And in an earlier version, it was the story of the treacherous vizier was the title Mm -hmm. in the first volume in the earlier nights. And so by this point, we are getting to see more stories that are starting to repeat themselves. And so it's not clear whether a single author purposefully included like this tale to have us remember King Shariar is listening or whether it was just a common tale. And so it kind of got stuck in with all the other like common tales. Yeah. And so it's interesting that some authors have used it to put it as the end piece. Right. To then make it cycle in on itself or like, because Burton noticed that this story was King Shariar's, he added a dialogue of, by Allah, this story is my story, in this case is my case. Yeah. Because Sir Richard Burton was like, how would, you know... How would he not, yeah. How would he not comment on this? And so, like, it is just one of those interesting things about the knights that you look at and you're like, is this evidence of the stories being aware of themselves? Like, was this put in for a meta reason? Yeah. Or was this carelessly placed in here? Yeah. And and there there aren't good answers. Right. There are arguments both ways. And for yeah. me, taking a page out of Richard Burton's book and putting my own spin on it, because of my familiarity with how I came to know the Knights, in my version of it, the reason why he doesn't comment on it is because it didn't happen to him because his story takes place in the real world and she's just telling stories and of course a story with a djinn would just show up in there so in the jeff translation that's how this all makes sense is that you're gonna take out some of the original frame story yeah get rid of the efrit stuff just keep it keep it grounded so that we have fanciful places to go i guess that makes sense just kidding but i do like uh, in in reality though i do like the fact that it's like whether purposeful or not, I like the fact that it repeats and then it makes us think things about whether he comments on it or not. The fact that he doesn't comment on it doesn't mean that he's not recognizing his own story in this. Yeah, that now two year two years since that happened, he doesn't see himself as that same person anymore. Right. And so he doesn't feel a need to comment on it. 
or, or, yeah. or there's like one thing that I kind of think is that this whole story of the wiles of women, it's really interesting. Again, it comes kind of towards the end of the nights when he's warmed up. He's decided that he's not going to kill. No, he hasn't decided that he's not going to kill her yet, right? We don't know that he hasn't decided to kill her yet. But this does come after the animal tales where he kind of apologizes. Not apologize. He recognizes that he's done wrong and he verbalizes that he knows he's done wrong by killing all these other women. So he didn't say, oh, I'm never going to kill you. Shaharzad, but he has apologized for killing women in the past. And so it's a little, a little implied. Yeah. So, and the point I was trying to get to with that is it's interesting that this set of stories, the viziers convince him to spare someone's life, but the someone's life is a son. It's not a woman. And they did so by proving how, wily women are which was his original kind of like worldview that he's since come away from so it's like it's this weird thing where it's and, like and to take to take that like even further is the people were delaying this person's murder by telling, by telling stories. stories yeah so it's like it is so reflective of the situation that he's in yeah and i feel like it is something that would really make him reflect. Like, I think he would see himself in this even more, not just in the story that literally happened to him with the Ifrit, but also see himself in this position of wanting to kill kill someone. Kill her or don't kill her. Yeah. Yeah. And then coming to the decision like, oh, it's the right thing not to kill this woman. And to have that kind of like dissonance between it's the right thing not to kill the son because this woman is wily. I don't think that all women are wily anymore, but I've made a right decision not to kill a woman. You know what I mean? I just feel like it's kind of like this weird twisted inverse version of his story. Because he's also in this story at the end, he decides not to kill his son, but he also decides not to kill the woman who was deceitful, who tried to cheat on him. Yeah. Unlike Shariar, who, when he found out that a woman cheated on him, Killed Murder. her and hundreds of others who didn't. And who, yeah, innocent people as well. And so it is interesting because it's like not only did the stories stop him from killing his son, but also even though the woman wasn't proven innocent at the end, he didn't kill her either. Yeah. He like had some degree of mercy on her by just exiling her. Yeah. Yeah. And it is interesting because there is a story within those tales of the wiles of women of a man who did kill his wife for cheating on him and then vowed never to marry. And it's one of the earlier ones too. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like even those stories, I don't know, like within the wiles of women, the stories progress towards not killing the woman, even though she may be wily. Well, because in, inside of like all these stories, even the ones like we didn't tell it, it, the outcomes are different and like all of them of who gets away with it, who gets caught, who gets killed, even though they're innocent, who gets tortured, even though they're innocent. Yeah. Like the, the degrees to which the characters did something wrong doesn't always match like what ends up happening to them. Like it's, it just shows this like wide variety of both the types of people that there are in the world, but also that like sometimes bad things happen to good people. Sometimes good things happen to bad people. Sometimes 
like justice is exacted and sometimes they don't even know that, you know, they're stuck sieving dirt, not realizing that right. they're, they've ma- been made a fool of. The other thing I think is really interesting is that the woman who is telling all of these stories, yes, she may be telling the stories for deceitful purposes, but it doesn't mean that those stories in themselves are deceitful. So it's like there really is this good argument back and forth, like you're saying, like, deceitful women, women who are treated unfairly. And you yes. think of who is the one that's telling these stories and what's the purpose of her telling them? It's Shahrazad telling these to the king to spare her life. So it's exactly like what you were saying. She is trying to point out like, okay, yes, there may be these wily women. These viziers have these stories that they can tell. But she has just as many stories that she can tell about times when that was not the case. You know, and it's like it yeah. balances out and it sways the king every time she tells one. And I think it is very important that in the end that that frame story wraps up with the decision to show mercy, even though the king can admit like, yes, this woman has done something wrong, but I don't have to kill anyone. Like someone can do something wrong and be punished for it without it being like them being killed. They can go about their life. They can hopefully maybe change for the better or something. You know what I mean? Like giving them a chance to move past it and learn or whatever. It's just, it's just really interesting. The, the layers and the levels and the complexity of the frame stories within stories, within stories and how every level interacts with one another. And I like how you pointed out how the stories like were being used inside of like this back and forth, because like each one of the stories is very capable of being like a standalone story. Yeah. And so it's interesting to me, like the, the way that they are choosing to use them. You could tell the story of like the merchant and the parrot to a group of people. And they don't need to know that a visier told that story in a way to highlight to the King that Uh you shouldn't listen to anything that a woman says. (laughs) But when you like pull that story in and out of like that framing, it changes how like the story is perceived where it's like, told inside of the cycle it's like oh yeah what a terrible thing for like that woman to do outside like pulling as a standalone story like it's hilarious yeah <laughs> like it's just funny it's a story of like a trickster uh-huh. like woman who was able or even like the story of the woman and her two lovers so like that's just a funny hilarious story about a woman who's like trying to like juggle all these like horny men in her life yeah and still she like comes out on top and it's funny because it's like i'm not a person that like approves of cheating on your spouse Uh but i love the like quick clever like hilarity of it and so it's like a person could tell that story at a dinner party and have it be a hilarious example of some of the stories that are like inside of the nights without even saying oh but it's framed as and this is why women are awful yeah yeah (laughs) so yeah it's like when you when you put it back into the frame story of like see women are not to be trusted it stops being as funny of a story because like it's being used as evidence to like accuse all women of something that like is just a funny story yeah but it like again it kind of reminds me of like the the friendship poem that was inside of like the wolf and the fox story uh-huh. where like fox or wolf tells 
this very beautiful poem about friendship, but he does it to like manipulate Fox. So it's like the poem itself is like super beautiful and pure friendship, but like Wolf is an abuser. (laughs) Yeah. And so like, it's just interesting, like how the stories are used. So yeah, it's really interesting to me that some of these stories, and again, more of them exist within the nights and also in the book, the perfumed garden, there's more stories that exist that have a theme of like the wiles of women. And there's other stories that are from this same time period that the nights were being written down of collections of stories that included chapters on like the wiles of women. And so this was like, this was a genre of stories. And there is also a book that was called The Book of the Delicate Flowers Regarding the Kiss and the Embrace. And there is apparently it, within that, there's a 25-chapter compendium on the wiles of women and deals with the tricks that they use to deceive their husbands and lovers. <laughs> so, like, in multiple books from this time period, there were, like, tales that were just about, like, the wiles of women, women tricking their husbands while they're hooking up. I mean, and it it's not unique to this area either. There's tales like this within the Canterbury Tales. Yeah. Which is also a contemporary of these same books that I'm listing. But it's interesting to me because men were telling these stories, not just as warnings against women, but also just for like the funny of them. Yeah. Because they found them like amusing too, but also women found these stories amusing because they were also stories where women were able to take back some of the power in a relationship, do the things that they wanted to do and get away with the stuff that they wanted to get away with. Yeah. So the last thing that I kind of want us to talk about is the idea of fate. This is a super interesting example in the thousand and one nights of stuff not going badly. (laughs) So a quote from Arabian Nights, a companion says the nights contain many stories and fables, which share this. You can't beat fate attitude and advocate a sort of religious quietism. It avails me not to beware of the stroke of fate and fortune since even he who taketh precaution may never flee from destiny. So this idea exists that, you know, when you find out that something is fated to happen, you try to like go against it, stop it from happening. But while you're in the process of trying to stop it from happening, you actually make it happen. Right. And we like we've all seen movies where this happens. We've all seen like fairy tales like it, it's such a like a common thing. And it's so interesting to me that in this story, we find out at the beginning, like, if he talks within seven days, he will be killed. And so the king wants to take all these precautions to keep his son safe. And as he's trying to take all these precautions to keep his son safe, something happens that puts his son's life in danger. Except by the end yeah. of this story, he doesn't die. Like it, it doesn't happen. And so it's really interesting because like this story subverts that expectation of can you beat fate? Yeah, totally. And it like, 
totally subverts it by doing the opposite because it's kind of the fact that the time ran out that would be the sign of his certain death that made it so that you know Sinbad could bring him back out and kind of put an end to this back and forth yeah between the people trying to convince the king which seems like it could have gone on forever <laughs> yeah and it makes you wonder too like wait well what would have happened if the son had been allowed to come out of his room and say his piece to his father yeah would would his father yeah. within those seven days would something have happened that his father wouldn't have believed him but for whatever reason when it got yeah. to the end of those seven days and his son came out and got to explain his side say his piece at that point, for whatever reason, the king was ready to hear it and accept it. Yeah. And so, you know, that tragic fate of him dying was, like, stopped. Yeah, completely. So, on that note, I have a quote from C.S. Lewis. See, I have more quotes than just... <laughs> <laughs> than just Robert Irwin. And... I'm sure the topic of like fate and defeating fate, like it will come up a lot. Robert Irwin says like fate's a leading character in the nights. And so like, it'll come up again, but I really like the C.S. Lewis quote that says such stories produce, at least in me, a feeling of awe coupled with a certain sort of bewilderment, such as one often feels in looking at a complex pattern of lines that pass over and under one another. One sees, yet does not quite see, the regularity. We have just had set before our imagination something that has always baffled the intellect. We have seen how destiny and free will can be combined, even how free will is the modus operandi of destiny. And it's that idea that, like, wait, who is in charge in the nights? Is everything fate? Or do we have some kind of free will that can stop fate from happening? Yeah. And so often it seems that like free will is how destiny operates. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> wait, but that doesn't make any sense. It's like, correct. It doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've said this before, and I'm sure that like this will not be the last time, but I just love that it's like the further we get into the night, the more there are these like cool literary things, the way that the the text is like responding to itself or makes us have to think about and respond to it. Like we're focusing on like this, like wiles of women, this kind of section of text that is found in multiple other texts throughout like the same time period on the wiles of women mm -hmm. but also this particular one is being used inside of the knights to talk to king shariar about how he's experienced wiles of women and it almost seems to like agree with him like the story cycle itself seems to agree with him that like yes women do be like that <laughs> women are tricking mm -hmm. you and it, it seems like, oh, why would Shahrazad want to tell him these tales if she's trying to prove that, like, women aren't wily deceivers? And, like, I just want to go back to the, a quote that I had read earlier at the beginning of the episode, but just like a part of it. Where it says, then again, after listening to yet 
other tales, he may simply laugh and conclude that sex is not such a serious matter anyway. The sheer diversity of the stories can be seen as providing a therapy of a kind. And it's like King Shariar and his brother, after they were cheated on, they went into the desert because they said they they wanted to just wander in the desert until they found somebody who's had it worse than them. They found that in the yeah. story of the woman that was trapped in the chest of like the gin because they were like, wow, this gin has had it way worse than we have because his woman cheats on him like hundreds of times more. And that like comforted them. Uh-huh. And in that same kind of like way, <laughs> it almost seems like Shahrazad telling the king all of these stories where she's like, yeah, you know what? Some people get cheated on. Some people don't. Some people get accused of it while other people like are enjoying it. She's just showing all these different ways that where it's like, yeah, that's the human condition where all of these different things can possibly happen. And it's not just you that they happen to. These tales are old. These tales of this happening are just part of the human experience. And you're not alone in this experience. So let's make it jovial. Let's make it fun. Let's make affairs fun again. (laughs) Thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. If you are enjoying what we're doing, please support us by leaving us a review or share us with your friends. Special thanks to Andrew Forey for our music and Clarice Inch for our artwork. If you are a dreamer, come in. If you are a dreamer, a wisher, a liar, a hoper, a prayer, a magic bean buyer. If you're a pretender, come sit by my fire, for we have some flax golden tails to spin. Come in, come in. Invitation by Shel Silverstein. The concubine cannibalized all of the people <laughs> and then killed all the children. <laughs> the end. <laughs> and I'm like, ha psych. I told you there was no cannibalism and child murder. And I fooled you. Thus proving the wiles of women. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow. So meta. Of you to do that. Yeah. I'm like, we're having a, we're having a lot of fun tonight.